Amen. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Amos. Prophet Amos, which uh, is the next in line of our series of the Minor Prophets. If you're visiting for the first time, you need to know that we are tackling one minor prophet at a time. For the, from now to up until Christmas, we're going, to be, uh, we're going to be doing what we call overview sermons that give us a sense of the entire book's message. And we've chosen the Minor Prophets because they're a nice, manageable block of data. There's 12 of them, and they, uh, they often are short and to the point, and they're often unknown by most of us. We just know practically nothing about these compared to other sections of Scripture. That's a general rule that we've found to be true. So, so we're going to take them one at a time, and Amos is the one we come to today. So uh, if you turn maybe, I think, three-quarters of the way through your Bible, you're probably pretty close to it if you don't know where Amos is. There's also a table of contents that should be in the front. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles scattered throughout the seating area. You can just flag somebody down and be happy to pass one to you. We're going to be in Amos this morning. This past spring was one of the more remarkable times that I can remember for global regime change. What we've called the, what we've come to call the, the Arab Spring. We're all across the Middle East. Countries that have had dictators oppressing their people, suppressing their rights, slaughtering them in some cases, for decades in some cases, all of a sudden, all at the same time, start throwing them off. It's remarkable. This, this spring saw, um, saw Mubarak in Egypt get toppled. It's seen Gaddafi in Libya pretty much get toppled. Nobody knows exactly where he is, but he's irrelevant now. This is a, a guy who's ruled for something like 40 years of, of almost barbarism thrown off. Assad in Syria is close. And of course, you know, it wasn't long ago that we, that we saw Saddam Hussein get toppled in Iraq. And no matter how you feel about the, the wisdom of the Iraq war, there's nobody, I don't think, who doesn't like the fact that Saddam is out and didn't enjoy the, watching the trial where his own people brought the charges of cruelty. No one who, no one who understood the, the massive slaughter of the Kurdish people that he af- afflicted could have could have watched those trial scenes without some sense of satisfaction. And the reason is, the reason we respond to these dictators getting toppled with joy is that we, we recognize them as perpetrators of serious, even severe injustice. We see them as those who have oppressed their people, taken advantage of them, exploited them for their own gain. We hate injustice, especially on a long, large scale. But what I worry about is that maybe by focusing in on these large-scale injustices, like these dictators or like the global slave trade, something like that, we become immune to smaller-scale injustices that we're also guilty of. Times when we take advantage of other people for our own good, exploit them, use them not for who they are and in a way that celebrates them, but for what we can get from them. I think that was Israel's problem that Amos was attacking. Amos was consistently about injustice. But he addressed his claims, his, his charges of injustice, to a nation that thought they were a, a, a bulwark of justice among the, the nations of the world. They identified themselves as different from their neighbors. And that led them, we think, to an apathy, to an inability to see that they were failing in the ways that they, in the very things that they had charged against others. So we're coming to Amos this morning, along with the other prophets we've already looked at, knowing that these guys have a lot of overlap with each other. 
Amos, like all the prophets, is going to be about sin. It's going to be about the promise of judgment. It's going to be probably in some level about some sort of promise of restoration. We've been seeing that over and over again. And, and, and fair warning, we're going to keep seeing stuff like that throughout the rest of this series. But what I really want us to do as we come to each book, knowing that that's the overall theme, those are the themes in all of them, we want to look at what nuances there are in each book. Where does, where does this particular prophet say something or, or ride a hobby horse, if you will, that other prophets don't? And in Amos, that comes through very clearly. Amos is meant to put Israel on guard, to tell them that sin and judgment are not someone else's problem. They're your problem. And then a next, the next layer is his condemnation of their sin. Because where Hosea really, con- uh, really focused in on idolatry on the large scale and what that looks like to God with the image of spiritual adultery, we looked at that a couple of weeks ago, Amos focuses in on another layer to Israel's sin. He focuses in not on idolatry per se, but on injustice. I think Hosea helps us to see what idolatry looks like in practice. That the way that you treat other people always reflects how you view God and how you stand before Him. And then we want, so those are the first two layers we want to expose in, in Amos this morning. And then we want to conclude where Amos does, which is looking ahead to a coming Messiah and try to understand how is it that this coming Messiah we identify with Jesus is a solution to the problem of injustice that Amos is condemning here. Those are the three steps we want to take this morning to try to get at Amos' unique message. And because we're going to be looking at the entire book rather than any one passage, I'm going to let you stay seated. We're not going to read anything in particular this morning. And we're just going to dive in to the details. So the first statement that we want to investigate this morning. And this one gets at the overall picture of the book. What is it that Amos is going for? It's this. Sin and judgment are not someone else's problem. Sin and judgment are not someone else's problem. What you need to know about Amos is that he prophesied around the same time that Hosea did. That means he prophesied before Israel was sent into exile, before they were conquered by their powerful neighbor to the northeast, Assyria. That happened in the year 722 B.C., before Christ. This prophecy probably came in 10, 20, maybe 30 years before that happened, but after it was pretty much a done deal. Repentance had already, that that ship had sailed. Israel's fate had been sealed, and Amos was there to announce this to them. So he he prophesies at the same time as, as Hosea did. And so the culture that he prophesies into was roughly the same as Hosea's. It was a time of prosperity. Israel had, was enjoying a brief window of prosperity, perhaps unmatched since David and Solomon had ruled. It was a time when they had lots of wealth and, and there was no trouble with famine or drought. There was, there was plenty of, of material goods to go around, so they were living well. And in that context, it seemed that their circumstances had pulled a veil over their eyes. It had made them blind to their true condition before God. Because they, like others who worshipped idols at that time, believed that if things were going well, it was because they were doing right. They were being blessed because of their goodness. This had blinded him to the fact that God was far from pleased with them. Amos is meant to expose this false comfort and warn them that reckoning is coming. The process begins right away in chapter 1. Chapter 1 gives us a series of what what, uh, scholars call judgment oracles. It's like 
God is calling before the, 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 the judge's bench or desk all of the nations surrounding Israel, and he is giving it to them. He is reading off the list of charges that they're guilty of and promising that they will not get away with it. So Syria, this is in chapter 1, begins in, in chapter 1, verse 3. Transgressions of Damascus, which is Syria, they'd showed cruelty in war. They were guilty of treating people like they were nothing more than objects. Gaza is condemned next. They're guilty of capturing cities that were probably unprotected and selling people into slavery. Tyre was guilty of pretty much the same thing. Edom is guilty of, of perpetual anger. They're empty of compassion. They don't, they don't respond to others in the way that God would have them to respond to others. Ammon is guilty of killing innocents in war, including pregnant women who were ripped open. Moab is also condemned as, as doing evil to the bones of their enemies. It's like, they, it's, like the, it's like they were so captivated, so captured by this desire for revenge that they couldn't even let death be the end of it. And they had to desecrate the graves of those that they had conquered. So one by one, these nations are, are called to account for the things that they had done wrong. And you can almost hear Israel sitting there or standing there listening to Amos preach and thinking, I like this guy. He's got it right. They hate these enemies. All these, all these nations around them are their sworn enemies. There is a deep hatred here. And this that Amos is communicating is exactly how Israel would have thought of them. They were barbaric. They were uncultured. They were, they were guilty of bloodthirstiness and revenge. They deserved God's judgment. Israel is cheering Amos on as he rolls through these, these indictments. And then he gets to the end and turns the same sights on Israel works himself to the finale, which is in chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. The Lord says, For three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Here, Israel is condemned for essentially the same regard for others that was condemned in their, in their neighbors. It may have looked different for Israel, but it was the same sin. Only Israel sins her failures are far worse because Israel possessed something none of these other nations did. They possessed a unique covenant bond to God where God had spoken to them in a way he hadn't spoken to others, explaining who he is and what he's like, what he expects from them. They had also received his special care in setting them up as a nation. That's where Amos goes next in verse 9. This is, how, this is how Israel is treating other people, just been described, trampling on the heads of the poor. Yet it was I, God says, who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. The Lord had shown them care that he had not shown anyone else. And still, they responded with oppression. 
the middle chapters of Amos, really chapter 3 through chapter 6, are given to describing Israel's sin in more detail. The sin that's already been introduced here in chapter 2. And we're going to talk more about that in just a moment. Then chapters 7 through 9 describe the judgment that's coming in greater detail. But throughout, so indictment of of Israel's nations and then Israel is part one. Part two is further detail on Israel's sin. Part three, further detail on the judgment that's coming. But throughout this, a theme that runs through it is Amos exposing Israel's apathy, their unwillingness to recognize that they are guilty of the same things that others are guilty of and to to call them to account for those sins. Another classic example of this is in Amos chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. It appears that Israel was looking forward to the day of the Lord that we talked about from Joel last week. This day, this sort of final day of judgment when God puts everything right by wiping the earth clear of all opposition to his rule. Well, Israel was under the impression at this point in their history that that would be a good day for them. That this would be the time when they would be vindicated in the face of all of their enemies. They probably read Deuteronomy chapter 32 that way because it does promise about God's people being vindicated and set apart in the day of judgment when God judges all of his enemies. They thought of the day of the Lord as a day for them. But here's Amos' word to them in, in chapter 5, verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is, a dark, it is darkness and not light. Now, I love these images, verse 19. It's as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. You can't win for losing. It's as if he went into the house thinking he's secure, thinking he's safe now, leans his hand on the wall, and then gets bit by a serpent. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? The point of Amos is to tell Israel they should not look forward to judgment because it's coming against them, not just their enemies. Ultimately, Amos is meant to announce that that time had come. God had been consistently revealed throughout Israel's history as a God who's slow to anger, who has remarkable patience with those who disobey him. But that patience has limits, and those limits had been reached. Chapter 4, for example, has several images describing God trying to win them back through small-scale judgments, kind of like the plagues in Egypt. He describes sending locusts, for example, or, or uh, sending famine or drought or military defeat, all those little warnings, trying to point them back to reliance on God, and they, they, they heard it never. So finally, they are told to prepare. Verse 12 in chapter 4 says, Therefore, having not responded to any of my judgments... Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Chapter 7 gives a similar chain. It gives a a series of visions that Amos gets of the judgment that's coming. And after each vision of judgment, Amos pleads with God, please turn back. Don't come in judgment. And the first two times, God relents. It's almost like we're getting a picture of a long, ongoing decision about when to judge. And through Amos' prayer... God holds off and holds off. He wants repentance. He wants them to return, and they don't. So finally, at the beginning of chapter 8, we get the image, the final image for judgment. It's a basket of ripe fruit. This is what the Lord God showed me, Amos says. Behold, a basket of summer fruit, 
And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord. So many dead bodies. They are thrown everywhere. Silence. The time was now. Amos promises widespread death that history bears out actually happened in this generation and exile, ultimately, taken from their land to the land of another for generations. So that's the main point of Amos. Sin and judgment are Israel's problem, not someone else's. He's calling Israel to what we should be called to ourselves. And we always, it's always easier to fixate on the sins of other people. It's, all, it's a great tell. If you ever want to find out where someone stands and their self-awareness about, about their own sin, to ask them, how, what, what do you think of when you think of sin? How do you define it? And more often than not, unless we're very carefully aware of ourselves and, and analytical about ourselves, we're going to list off things that we're not guilty of. We're going to define sin in terms of really big social categories that there's no chance we'd ever fall into that group. Things that, that, that we just never struggled with. Those are the things that we're going to fixate on. It's, it, it's a natural tendency. And it was Israel's problem. And Amos was calling them past that apathy and blindness to see that judgment was coming for them. But Amos goes deeper. And I, I think perhaps the most lasting relevance of Amos for us is in the, the way that he helps us understand sin. Amos, as I mentioned, is a book largely about injustice. When he condemns Israel, that's what he condemns them for. And the point that Amos makes is that God takes injustice personally. That's the second major heading for us today, and I think it's the most important takeaway from Amos. Amos gives us a picture of a God who takes injustice personally. Amos is in good company in calling Israel to awareness of coming judgment. Lots of the prophets do that. But Amos is way more specific than most prophets in explaining why Israel faces this judgment. Remember, he was prophesying at the same time that Hosea was. So we can assume that, that the idolatry that Hosea was so upset about is also upsetting to Amos, that it's behind what he's saying here to Israel. But if idolatry was sort of the, the top layer, sin, the, the, the biggest category of sin for which Israel was to be judged, it seems like Injustice is the next one just below it. And that there's a deep connection between these two. Hosea condemning the same group of people for their idolatry. Amos is highlighting injustice. What I want us to see is that those two things are inextricably linked to each other. That ultimately, in, in God's view, injustice equals idolatry. Injustice equals idolatry. Amos is one of the best examples we get of a consistent theme that runs throughout the Bible. The theme that how you treat other people is intimately connected to how you view God. And that how you, your attempts to relate well to God, to come to Him, to worship Him, to be blessed by Him, that those attempts to relate well to God are weighed by how you treat other people. So let's start with Amos' condemnation of Israel for injustice, and then we'll move to, to make this larger claim. 
So, so these references to injustice are all through it, all through Amos. The first one is in chapter 2 that we already read. When, when God finally gets around to condemning Israel after he's condemned their neighbors, the thing that he goes at them for first is that they trample on the heads of the needy. Flip back to chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. They sell the righteous for silver. So God's own righteous people are less valuable to them than, than coins. They sell the needy for a pair of sandals. They would rather have shoes to wear, maybe even an extra pair of shoes to wear, than they would protect those who were in need. They trample the heads of the poor into the dust of the earth. They turn aside the way of the afflicted. Verse 8 gives us another couple images that, that may not be immediately clear. It says that they lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. The image is is one of the poor who are in such desperate need that they sell even their own garments or they lease them out in exchange for food or money. And these garments, not needed by by those that Amos is condemning, are just used just to lay down on at night. The wine of those who have been fined is is another image evoking the exact same thing. That sometimes to pay off they would to pay off debts or to, to get more money because they needed it to survive, they would give the things that they needed, like like drink and food. And and the image is of the rich not needing those things, living it up on the very things that the poor needed to survive, taking it from them because they could, not because they had to. The theme continues in plenty of other places. Another key example is in chapter five. If you want to flip over to chapter five. Verses 11 through 13. Again, the image of trampling on the poor is given to us. Verse 11 says, Therefore, because you trample on the poor, and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your sins, and how great are your sins. You you who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. The point is that they were exploiting those who needed most. They were secure materially, but they were trying to add to their security at the expense of those who had very little to nothing. Same image comes up in chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. It's an image of wealthy people living it up on the heads, on the backs of those who had nothing. Verse 4 says, Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory, and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. The image is almost one. It makes me think about Marie Antoinette for the French Revolution. Let them eat cake, right? She's, just, she's not worried at all about the plight of the poor. She just wants more stuff for herself. The classic image of the, of the rich caring nothing about the needs of the poor, that's exactly what you get here. That's what Israel was guilty of. And maybe the best example is in chapter 8. If you wanted to flip to chapter 8, verses 4 through 6. This, this really gets at the methods they were using to exploit those who were the most needy. Hear this, you who trample on the needy. Same image. They're just pounding them down. They're kicking them while they're down. You who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end. 
saying, when will the new moon be over? That was a, a religious festival or a, a time of religious observance that we may sell grain. They just want to get back to the market so they can make more money on the backs of those who had nothing. And the Sabbath, when will the Sabbath be over that we may offer wheat for sale? That we, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. You get the image? They're skewing things. They're fixing the system to maximize what they can get at the expense of others. They're even selling the chaff of the wheat. And, you know, the chaff was the worthless part. There's lots of images in the Bible of separating the chaff from the grain. The chaff is what just gets blown away. It has no substance to it. They're even selling that because they've got the poor right where they want them. Now, the reason that this treatment of others was such a significant problem had everything to do with the kind of God that the Lord of Israel is. Most God, you need to understand the context of, of worship in this time what most people living at the time of this generation of Israel thought about worship. Most of the peoples saw gods as limited in power to one or other thing that they wanted, like rain or fertility or you know, a good harvest. If they wanted those things, they would do what the gods who represented those things wanted from them. They'd worship them in the right way, offer the right sacrifice or whatever, and then they would get what they wanted. Ethics never came into it. These gods didn't care how you lived. They just cared that you stroked their egos in the right way. Israel's God, though, is making a claim to be more than just a limited deity. He is the Lord of all the earth. He's the only reason there is something and not nothing. And for that reason, everything that happens in the world that he created concerns him. It reflects on him directly. There are plenty of... One of the most remarkable things to me about Amos is what most scholars think are fragments of an old hymn that are scattered throughout it. So you'll go from, from reading about injustice or promise of coming judgment, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you get this hymn-like celebration of God as sovereign. An example of this is in uh, chapter 4, verse 13. Chapter 4, verse 13. All of a sudden, Amos is praising God. He who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Chapter 5 has a has very similar section. It starts out by, by describing God as the creator of the very stars that other nations were worshiping as if they were gods. He who made Pleiades and Orion and turns the deep darkness into morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. There, there's several of these fragments in here. What's the point? How is condemnation of injustice connected to this celebration of God's sovereignty? There's a reason that this God cares about how you behave towards others in a way that these other limited false gods of the peoples did not care. point is the primary sin that's implied in injustice. The reason the, this emphasis on God's sovereignty gets mixed with the condemnation on injustice as, as hand and glove themes throughout Amos is this. It has everything to do with the primary sin implied in injustice. Injustice equals idolatry. Why did Israel go after other gods as Hosea condemned them for? 
because they believed those gods could provide material security that God couldn't provide. God had promised to be their God, that they would be his people, and in that promise was a promise of security, that everything that they needed they could get from him. They disbelieved that promise and went to other idols, hoping that they could give them what they wanted. Similarly, why abuse the poor? It's because others are seen not as objects of love and affection, but as objects of self-advancement, as objects of exploitation, as a way to enhance your own material security. You oppress others. You take it, I mean, we're talking large-scale oppressions like the Holocaust down to the very smallest secret thing that you do behind the scenes to try to get a leg up on someone else or to use them for your own ends. Any injustice, ultimately when you boil it down, you oppress others, you take advantage of them and use them for your gain when you don't feel secure. You do it to bolster your position. You do it to compensate for something. I mean, take just the most menial example you know, what, you know what you're always told about bullies in the schoolyard? That the, the, whether they're verbal bullies who are always picking on someone, trying to, to cut them down to size, or physical bullies who are always throwing their weight around, they do that because they're compensating for something, right? Because they really aren't secure. Because they don't feel very good about themselves. And they're trying to prove to themselves that they're better than they think they are. They do it to compensate for something. It's exactly the same thing in injustice. All injustices from schoolyard on up are about feeling like you could be more secure if you take matters into your own hands at the expense of others than if you just trusted that God was going to provide everything that you need. By oppressing the poor, Israel was making a statement. It's a statement that fits perfectly with Hosea's condemnation of this same exact people. What they were saying was that the care and provision of God was not enough for them that they had to take what they could for themselves, that they could do better on their own than they could do in waiting for his hand to provide. That's why Amos consistently, throughout his prophecy, refers to the pride of Israel. Their injustice is, is deeply connected to the pride that they take from thinking that their security, whatever to whatever extent it exists, is something they're responsible for. They got where they were because of their own effort, not because of God's provision. It's why God had to remind them back in chapter 2, I'm the one who led you out of Egypt and delivered you into this land. I'm the one who got rid of the Amorites before you. I gave you what you needed, and you think you got it. And you think that that justifies doing whatever you have to to get more. God takes injustice personally then, in part because he cares for the weak and the poor, but ultimately because injustice is a reflection on him. It says he's not trustworthy, so we're going to take what we can, come what may. It says he's just like the other gods, and he won't care as long as I do my rituals and keep him happy. And that's why the test of authentic religion throughout the Bible is in your treatment of those who are most in need. The test of authentic religion, of proper relation to God, of standing with God in the way that that a covenant member should, is how do you treat those who are poor, those who are orphans or widows, those who are foreigners or aliens. It's why the law is summed up in the command to love God first and to treat your neighbor as yourself. Those two go together. If you love God first, fully with all that you are, you don't need to exploit your neighbor. You're free to love them as yourself. Those two go together. It's why John could claim that those could say that those who claim to love God but don't love their brothers are nothing but liars. 
And it's why the pretentious rituals of those who oppress the weak are worse than empty in God's eyes, according to Amos. In Amos chapter 5, verse 21, here is God's indictment of those who would oppress and at the same time offer worship to him. I hate, I despise your feasts and take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. But, verse 24, the one made famous by Martin Luther King Jr., let justice roll down like waters. Put your money where your mouth is. You you, you pretend to worship me, show me that you trust in me, and let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. God takes injustice personally because it attacks those that he loves and because it's a rejection of him in favor of self-reliance. The way that you treat those from whom you stand to gain nothing shows whether or not you really fully stand secure under God and his provision. Now, there is a lot of time that separates Amos and the, and, and the context in which he spoke these words from our own. This, one, this book in particular is difficult to bridge that gap because he's, he was writing to a lost cause. He was just announcing that Israel was going to be defeated. There's no call for repentance really here. And Israel was sent into exile. So this is like an open and shut case. They were guilty of specific injustice. They've been punished. That's all, that's all she wrote. What can we take from it? I think what we have to emphasize here is that even though this judgment happened in the past for specific sins of the past, it expresses how God always feels about sin and it, how he always feels about injustice, how he always connects injustice to idolatry. And we should assume that he feels the same way now. We should assume that he still cares about injustice, that he cares about the Holocaust. He cares about the slave trade. He cares about Darfur. It remains a mystery why he allows these things to happen. But what isn't a mystery is how he feels about it and that in the long view, he won't stand for it. But here's our danger. Our danger, I think especially in our part of town, in our culture, where we, are, we tend to think of ourselves as particularly attuned to the injustices of society and as particularly opposed to those, our danger is that here in our comfortable circumstances, we would share the same apathy of Israel. Remember back to Israel, condemning, they were probably with Amos all along as he's condemning the, the, the harsh, horrible track record of their neighbors. These huge things that are obvious to everyone, like ripping open pregnant women. You could see Israel thinking, we aren't guilty of that. That makes us just. I think we're in a particularly diff- a dangerous position here, uh, falling in the same trap. Because compared to the societies like those that have seen uprisings in the Arab Spring, ours, at least right here, doesn't seem to hold a candle. And it's easy to slap a bumper sticker or put on a T-shirt that says, we, we are against the things that they are doing over there. That's a lot easier than actually thinking self-critically about how we might be guilty of exploitation ourselves, about where we might be treating people as objects to add to what we have, to add to our sense of security rather than, than giving of ourselves to, to serve their interests. I think we've got to look first to ourselves to think carefully and critically rather than becoming confident that because we aren't guilty of what Qaddafi was guilty of, we're good. And that brings us to the third and final 
statement for today. That's that the only solution for injustice is Jesus. The only solution for injustice is Jesus. If you're a careful listener to God's word, and if you're suspicious of preachers who like to read into texts, what you should be thinking right now is where in the world are you going with Jesus when his name doesn't even come up here? You should ask that. That's good. But what we have to remember is that Amos and the prophets are one piece in a much larger story. They're part of a tapestry that has a beginning and an end. And our goal is to try to see where this falls in the overall story and how it points us ahead to what's coming. How it prepares us, in other words, for the significance of Jesus when he arrives on the scene. Here, the key pointer ahead to a Messiah that's coming is in chapter 9. And this comes out of nowhere. Look at chapter 9, verse 11. Amos says, in that day, I guess speaking of the the final day when when the Messiah would come, the day of the Lord... I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. It's a promise. It goes on to talk about material prosperity, some of the same images we've seen earlier in the other prophets. It's a promise of a coming day that would be brought in by someone associated with David's throne. So how do we understand this promise that comes so bluntly on the end of a book that's all about judgment? And how do we see it in the context of a book that's condemning injustice? What does it have to do with that? Notice there's no conditions. There's no talk of repentance. This generation that Amos was speaking to was way past that point. But why make promises at all? Why even try? I think the key is that the promise to David that's being mentioned here, the promise of a throne that would be eternal, that would never fall, That's a promise that God made unilaterally. He made it without any conditions. He made it staking himself to himself and not to any action of those that he was was making the promise to. He promised to Abraham first and then also to David to heal the world that had been broken by sin and to do that himself, even though he was the one who was sinned against. It's a promise that brings back to our minds what we saw in Hosea, the image of Hosea going back into the marketplace to which his unfaithful wife had sold herself in sin against him and buying her back himself at his own cost. It evokes that image of a God who's going to fix what was done against him and to fix it himself. It's a promise that looks ahead to a Messiah, and it's a promise that's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. This booth or tent of David that was to be put back up, that's what we're meant to see in our in our mind's eye as we, as we read texts about Jesus and think about them in terms of the whole story of the Bible, when we come to, Gen, to John chapter 1 and we hear that the Word who is eternal, the one who is responsible for making everything that is, has now become flesh and dwelt among us, the same Word, He has pitched His tent among us. That's the literal translation. The booth of David, the tent of David is restored in Jesus. And here's, here is the implication for Amos. Two statements. Because we're already unjust, Jesus is our only hope. Because we're already unjust, Jesus is our only hope. Ultimately, the point I was trying to drive at at the end of this last section is that whether we realize it or not, Qaddafi is not the standard, right? So that if we're better than he was, we don't have to worry. 
we are ultimately all guilty of the same things in, at heart. At root of all injustice, large or small, is, is an idolatry that, that assumes we've got to use other people for our gain because God can't give us what we need. We're all guilty of that. We are unjust. Because we're unjust, we deserve what Israel got. And the question is, how do we avoid getting what Israel got? One of the remarkable and unexpected truths about the one who would restore the tent of David and bring prosperity, as Amos promised, is that he would do this through his own blood. One of the things that Jesus would have to teach that wasn't known before is that the Messiah ultimately had to make the people worthy by standing in their stead and taking the judgment that they deserved. So because we belong with Israel and we're unjust, looking ahead through Amos and the promise of one who would restore the house of David, we look ahead to one who can make us just because he is just for us and absorbs the punishment that we deserve. Amos prepares us for Jesus because we need to be made just. Second statement. Because Jesus is everything we need, we don't need to be unjust anymore. Because Jesus is everything that we need, we don't need to be unjust anymore. Remember, remember where the roots of injustice lie, where oppression comes from, from large-scale social systems to small-scale schoolyard exploitation. It comes from insecurity. It comes from believing that you need to do what you can to get ahead, even if that means at the expense of others. When you don't trust God to be everything you need, you look to other sources on your own. And you can see most of the Old Testament as God calling his people back to rest in him instead of in other sources. The law, and especially the prophets, are calling, pleading with Israel to just be my people. I will be your God. Be my people. Trust in me. And those, those words fall on deaf ears. So God ups the ante in Jesus. Hebrews tells us that in former times, God spoke through the law, through the prophets. But now in these last days, he's spoken in his son to call us to trust in God as our only source of security, our only supplier of our needs, is, is a call that's made more clearly in Jesus than ever before. Because in Jesus, we have a token of just how far God will go to give us what we need. Romans 8 celebrates Jesus as, as this promise that in him, nothing in heaven or on earth, no height, no depth, no, not any created thing can separate us from God's love. The fact that he'd give up his son proves that. So if Jesus is everything that we need, it frees us up to stop worrying about trying to get ahead no matter the cost. And it frees us to give rather than to look to receive. It frees us to set in right relationship that consistent theme of the Bible. That how you view God influences directly how you view other people. That if he is everything, if you love him first and treat him as the shepherd of Psalm 23... From whom, with whom you lack nothing, you are freed to not use people, but to give yourself away for the good of people. It frees you to be the one on the schoolyard who sees the one who's pressed, the one who's always being made fun of. And the schoolyards never go away, right? You've all got them wherever you run, whatever your circles are. There are circles of people, and you know which ones are ostracized and which ones aren't. And you know that associating yourself with the one who's ostracized is going to knock you down a rug in the, in the social ladder. But when Jesus is all you need and you've got him, well, then you're free not to pile on to make yourself look better in the eyes of those who share your circle. 
but you're free to identify with that one who has need and to go to him in that need and to give of yourself come what may because you've got everything that you could ever need. Jesus is the only solution to injustice because he cuts the legs right out from under it. When you've got him, you don't need it. That's the message of Amos. Injustice is something God takes personally. It's something we're all guilty of. It's not someone else's problem, but thanks be to God because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Will you pray with me? Forgive us our idolatry. We are all standing guilty before you. Guilty of worry. Guilty of oppression. However the form. Guilty of treating others as objects. Would you give us the eyes of Jesus? Would you help us to see ourselves in and through him? And to be motivated by that identity to give ourselves away, whatever the cost, to mirror the gospel in the way that we treat others. Would you create us into a supernatural community of self-giving, rooted in an ultimate security that comes to us from your hand? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.